Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 3, Episode 1, The English Revolution. Welcome to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin, I have to thank the new additions to the House of Lords. Rob Brucato, Earl of Rudyard, Viscount Sophistication, N7 Shepherd SR3, Baron of Normandy, and Per, Baron Sandstrom. Like all of the patrons, they can now listen to this episode and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last time, last season, we saw the execution of Charles I for treason against the people of England. His death was neither the first nor the last unprecedented act which the Rump Parliament, backed by the army of Lord Fairfax and Oliver Cromwell, will carry out. Today, in our first episode of Season 3, the world will react to the regicide, and the Kingdom of England will become a republic, its ancient constitution of king, lords and commons swept away. When Charles was beheaded on that cold January afternoon, news travelled swiftly, but even news as earth-shatteringly breaking as this had to be carried by messenger and word of mouth. Even for those close to London, or well-informed enough to know, day by day, how the King's trial was proceeding, the final act was still a great surprise. Many believed, many hoped, that the prosecutors of the King would hold back at the last moment, either because a compromise would be reached, or their will to commit such an unprecedented act had failed, or because God himself intervened to save his divinely ordained monarch. As we well know, none of those things happened, and the executioner's axe fell. Within England, stunned surprise was fairly common, even among those who supported the regicide. The act itself, regardless of how justified one believed it to be, was unprecedented, Some recorded reactions were most likely exaggerated, but we still have multiple accounts of people fainting, or even dying, from shock. One royalist commentator recorded that upon hearing the news, quote, women miscarried, men fell into melancholy, some with consternations expired. Men, women, and children then, and yet unborn, suffering in him and for him, end quote. Puritans noticed similar feelings of shock from their neighbours, although they came to different conclusions. Quote, One neighbour durst scarcely speak to another when they meet in the streets, but not from any abhorrence at the action, but in surprise at the rarity and infrequency of it. End quote. The first Sunday after the regicide, the former Bishop of Rochester gave a sermon in which he compared the death of Charles 
to the killing of Jesus. And he later published a very anti-Semitic pamphlet which compared the regicides to Jews. The Countess of Derby, safely ensconced in Castle Russian in the Isle of Man, refused to even name the event, instead calling it the, quote, fatal stroke, which I cannot name without horror. Even Oliver Cromwell's sister was horrified by the act, and her brother's role in it. She wrote to a cousin saying that she would have traded her life for the king's, if given the chance. But the regicide had its supporters, especially among the army. In Yorkshire, for example, soldiers stopped the carriage of a relative of Lord Fairfax, mistook her for the general's wife, and harassed her for the outburst at the trial of the king. Samuel Pepys, famous for his diaries, was only 15 at the time, but he remembered celebrating the regicide at school. The anonymity of the executioners, masked and disguised as they were, was a source of honour, and free drinks in certain circles, and many people asserted that they had been the one to take the king's head. In Scotland, news of the execution of the king reached the government in Edinburgh on the 5th of February. At this point, Chancellor Loudon, dressed in black robes, announced the death of Charles I, and proclaimed the accession of their new king, Charles II. This proclamation, which was the standard ritual following the death of a monarch, it happened for Charles III just last year after all, was especially interesting for three reasons. Firstly, the rump English Parliament had made it illegal to proclaim Charles I's successor, so here was a stark divergence from their southern neighbours. Secondly, Charles was proclaimed King of Great Britain, France and Ireland. Ireland, because he was, France, because the Stuart line had inherited the English claim to France in word, if not in spirit, and Great Britain. Now, don't get confused, the act of union that formed the United Kingdom of Great Britain is still more than half a century away. But if you recall, James VI and I tried desperately to unite his old kingdom with his new one. This crashed on the rocks of national interest in both kingdoms, but the monarch's style was his own prerogative, so he just called himself King of Great Britain and hoped everyone else would catch up. His son had followed, and now his grandson inherited the title. Both of these matters, proclaiming Charles King at all, and proclaiming him King of not just Scotland but England as King of Great Britain, could be seen as a provocation towards their southern neighbours. But it was the only thing the Scots could do. The king was dead, so his heir instantly became king and inherited his legal titles, including King of Great Britain. It was still a couple of days before the English decided to abolish the monarchy, so the Scots were just following custom. And in any case, Scotland was not England, so whatever the English Parliament might say, the Scots would proclaim their own king, thank you very much. The third interesting factor in this proclamation, and one that was definitely an innovation, were the conditions attached to it. Quote, because his majesty is bound by the law of God and the fundamental laws of this kingdom to rule in righteousness and equity for the honour of God, the good of religion, and the wealth of his people, it is hereby declared that before he be admitted to the exercise of his royal dignity, he shall give satisfaction to this kingdom in those things that concern the security of religion, the union between the kingdoms, and the good and peace of this kingdom according to the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant, for which end we are resolved with all possible expedition to make our humble and earnest address to His Majesty 
end quote. In other words, the Scottish government proclaimed Charles II as their king, because that was simply fact. But until and unless he agreed to certain conditions, he would have no power as king. The king, formerly known as Prince Charles, had inherited the crown, but he had also inherited the Scottish Revolution, and he would have to come to terms with that. South of the border, the English Parliament was antagonised by the proclamation, but any immediate response was delayed, partly because the conditions included in the proclamation lessened the blow. The Scots were not yet inviting Charles II to assume his royal power, but also because English attention was distracted by Ireland. The Cromwellian hammer would fall another day. But it wasn't only the reaction from England that concerned Edinburgh. They were also worried about how their own people would react. Scotland was governed by the so-called Kirk faction. These were the men who would refuse to deal with Charles I unless he swore to the Covenant, and they were supported by, as the name suggests, the ministers of the Kirk. This was in contrast to the Engagers, Scottish Royalists and moderate Covenanters, who were prepared to deal with Charles. They had invaded England in his name, and been crushed. This allowed the hardline Covenanters of the Kirk party, including their highest profile leader, the Marquis of Argyll, to seize control of the kingdom in a brief civil war, with the aid of English troops. Then, the Scottish Parliament had met early in January, and passed the Act of Classes, which banned all engagers from power. The Kirk party controlled the government, but they were exceptionally weak. Understandably, many in Scotland were horrified and furious that the English had dared to kill a Scottish king. The Scottish commissioners in London had protested the sentence after it was handed down, and they'd done what they could to avert the execution. The English could not cut off the head of their king without also killing the King of Scots, and that would be seen, at best, as a bit rude. The Scottish government feared that the act of regicide would stir up royalist rebels across the kingdom, as well as inspire a foreign invasion in support of the exiled Charles II. So what followed were a series of government decisions fuelled by panic. The first came after the government heard rumours that exiled royalists, including the dreaded and hated Montrose, planned to invade the kingdom by landing in the north. So the government did the natural thing. It summoned many northern gentry and nobility who were royalists, or suspected of being royalists, to come to Edinburgh and sign a bond of loyalty to the government. At which point most of these men, fearing they'd be imprisoned, or worse, promptly rebelled and seized the fortified town of Inverness. So that could have gone better. The regime ordered David Leslie, Argyle's attack dog, to march north and put down this rebellion with as many men as he could find. The government also called for a new levy of 4,440 cavalry and 13,400 infantry, partly to put down this rebellion, but also because an invasion of Scotland was highly likely, if not from royalists in exile, then from their southern neighbours. But this call to arms was answered by pretty much no one. Scotland was tired, and there just wasn't the impetus for large-scale recruitment when foreign invasion was only anticipated. Stuart Reid estimates that instead of the almost 18,000 men the Kirk party called for, they got a couple hundred. But that tiredness and apathy didn't just affect the government. The rebels in the north, led by Sir Thomas Mackenzie, tried to establish a committee of war and to collect taxes, but no one paid the committee any mind, and certainly no one paid any taxes to it. 
Reed notes that instead of waging a rebellion, Mackenzie and his allies were basically just resisting arrest. With Leslie's approach, the fugitives ordered the destruction of Inverness's walls, and then they fled north, where we will leave them for now. Across the Irish Sea, the Irish Confederacy and the King agreed to a peace treaty, and it was signed on the 17th of January, just shy of two weeks before the regicide. The second Ormond peace will be a much more popular sequel to the first. The Marquis of Ormond, James Butler, was Charles I's chosen Lord Deputy of Ireland, and the King's last real hope. The negotiations had begun in the autumn of 1648, and because both sides were worried about what the English were going to do with the King, there was a surprising amount of compromise between Ormond and the Confederacy. Ormond offered religious freedom to Catholics in Ireland, although this was caveated with the condition that it would have to be approved by a future Parliament of Ireland, one that was lawfully summoned by Charles after he had been freed from captivity and restored to his full power. But when that Parliament was called, Catholics would be permitted to vote and stand for election. In return for this significant concession, the Confederates offered an army of 17,500 men to invade England, to fight for the king and see him restored to his throne. Parig Lenehan notes that this offer, to send the Irish army overseas to England, was never a real possibility, and in reality it was intended to defend the island of Ireland against the anticipated and inevitable parliamentarian invasion. It would also act as a useful guarantee that Lord Deputy Ormond and the king, whichever king happened to be alive at the time, would stick to the promises they had made. The Catholic Irish were well experienced in Charles I's duplicity and backtracking. These terms agreed, the Second Ormond Peace was signed, and at the stroke of a pen, the Irish Confederate government, which had governed the majority of Ireland for about seven years, and was arguably the most successful, truly self-governing Irish government until the 20th century, dissolved itself. It was replaced with 12 Commissioners of Trust, who managed Confederate territory, and who acknowledged Ormond as the Lord Deputy of Ireland. Protestants in Ulster, mostly Scots, agreed to put their forces under Ormond's command too. But it wasn't all sunshine and roses. Injuquin warned Ormond that many of his officers were still opposed to the concessions to Catholics. The Catholic clergy were deeply divided. The papal representative, the nuncio Archbishop Rinaccini, remained against the treaty, and the Catholic clergy were deeply divided and the leader of the Confederacy's Ulster army, Owen Roe O'Neill, still refused to agree to any treaty which the Nuncio did not agree with. This would be a problem for the new allies. They needed as few enemies as possible and as many friends as they could get to squash the last remaining holdouts of the English Parliament before they became bridgeheads. The Allied armies, the last standing army in the Three Kingdoms still bearing the King's banner, were on the clock. Cromwell was coming. The news of the regicide hit the European continent and the royalist exile community like a tidal wave. The Queen of England, Henrietta Maria, was at the Louvre in Paris when she was informed that her husband was dead and that she was a widow. The news was delayed by a week because the news first had to be sent to the French court at Saint-Germain and from there was sent on to the Queen in exile, now Queen Mother and Queen Dowager. When she was told, she collapsed in shock, and after she was revived, she left her youngest daughter, Henrietta Ran, who had never met her father, in the care of her governess. 
the Dowager Queen travelled to a convent she had enjoyed as a child and read the last letters sent by Charles. Her grief was life-changing. She was only 39, but she'd wear mourning black for the rest of her life. She will stay in the convent for months, and only left after friends begged her to think of her children. In The Hague, upon hearing the news that Charles had been executed, the Marquis of Montrose dramatically fainted in the middle of his followers. When they dragged him upright, he wailed and sobbed, quote, We must die, die with our gracious king. He locked himself away for two days, before rushing to his new king's side, but he left behind a poem written on a scrap of paper. I won't subject you to the whole thing, but it ends with the line, quote, I'll tune thy elegies to trumpet soons, and thy epitaph in blood and wounds. The news took a while to cross the Atlantic, but once it did, the reaction was dramatic. As we covered last season, the scattered English colonies in North America and the Caribbean did their best to stay neutral during the civil wars. Sure, some colonial governments made statements of support for one side or the other, Virginia for the Royalists, or Massachusetts for Parliament, for example, but none of them wanted to start wars between themselves over a political dispute that was so very, very far away. Not when their positions were so precarious. Perched on the coastline of the New World as they were, fearing attack from Native Americans and other Europeans alike. Internal dissent was mostly tolerated for the sake of peace, and colonial governments allowed their colonists to return home to fight if they wished. But by and large, the events of the Three Kingdoms were a dangerous distraction. The New England colonies of Massachusetts, Plymouth, New Haven, and Connecticut came together in a defensive alliance, specifically because they knew that the home islands would not rally to their aid if they were attacked. In the contested lands of the Chesapeake, or Ossimacomac, this is exactly what happened when the Powhatan launched the third and final Anglo-Powhatan War against the Virginia colony. Well aware that the homeland of these interlopers was at war with itself, the Powhatan leader Opechancano saw his last, best hope of keeping the English at bay, to his people's and his own cost. With their own problems to deal with, the early English Empire watched the wars of the Three Kingdoms from the sidelines. The best word to describe the actions of the colonial governments, whatever their sympathies, was passive. And then, Parliament killed the king. Now this blindsided the colonies because of the winter weather, very few ships made the Atlantic crossing until the spring, so the colonists hadn't even known that the king was on trial. New England appears to have learned about the regicide in May 1649, and over the summer, the rest of England's colonies found out that they no longer had a king or a house of lords, and were now a republic. Even for supporters of the parliamentary cause, this was a lot to take in. Where before there had been outward proclamations of support for one side or the other, after the regicide there was silence from the parliamentarian colonies. Even after being ordered to acknowledge the revolution by the Council of State, there were no official pronouncements, and Plymouth, the most conservative of New England's colonies, was paralysed and even cancelled their elections for that year. The same appalled silence was not found in the Royalist colonies. The island colonies of Antigua, Barbados and Bermuda, as well as Virginia, Newfoundland and Maryland, all eventually proclaimed Charles II as their rightful king, and disavowed the new regime. Virginia was second behind Bermuda, while Maryland was the last to do so. 
Virginia's House of Burgesses, aside from their revulsion at the regicide itself, feared that Parliament would encroach on their rights, rights that the king had protected. Political disagreements were no longer tolerated. Those who supported the death of the king or denied that his son was now monarch faced punishment. Maryland's proclamation of Charles was actually the result of a coup, literally. Acting Deputy Governor Thomas Green made the announcement while his superior was away, and he disregarded the previous policy of stoic neutrality. Lord Baltimore, the proprietor or owner of the Maryland colony, was in England, and he was a Catholic peer, so Baltimore had been trying to balance between the Royalists and Parliament, and since the ascendancy of the Grandees and the Rump, he'd been fighting an uphill battle to convince them that he, a Catholic, could be trusted. Now he had to explain why his vassals were effectively in rebellion. He blamed the distance, and somehow managed to convince the government that he could still be trusted. The new English government will have to assert their authority over the colonies by force, while royalists will also expand the fight into this imperial theatre. The fallout of the regicide will define the events of the first few episodes of this season of Pax Britannica. With the execution of the king, the rump parliament and their army allies had to settle a very important question. What comes next? To secure the political field, on the 1st of February 1649, the remnant of the House of Commons voted to deny a place in Parliament to anyone who had voted on the 5th of December the previous year, the day before the House was purged, in favour of negotiating with the King. MPs would have to publicly renounce their decision if they wanted to be allowed to take their seats. With this, the rump would remain firmly anti-Charles I, but that would be one of the few unifying opinions within the body as we will see this season. With their foundation secure, the rump set about formalising the constitutional revolution which had taken place. Early in January, the House of Commons had asserted its sole authority as representatives of the people to make laws when it ignored the opposition of the upper House of Lords to the trial of the king. They now made this official. On the 6th of February 1649, the House of Commons abolished the House of Lords, giving England a unicameral legislature. The next day, on the 7th, the Commons took the leap. Because monarchy was, quote, unnecessary, burdensome, and dangerous to the liberty, safety, and public interest of the people, end quote, it was abolished in England and Ireland. The late king's heirs were disinherited, no one was to pay them homage or assert their rights to the cast-down crown, and anyone who supported the pretenders or the institution of monarchy was to be condemned as a traitor. To replace the executive of the monarch, the Council of State was established. This was made up of 41 members, of which only nine were needed to be present for a quorum. The new council was appointed by Parliament, and a full third of its membership was associated with the army, including, of course, Oliver Cromwell, Arthur Haselrig, Lord Fairfax, and Philip Skippen. It also included the Earls of Pembroke, Salisbury, and Mulgrave. Now, interestingly, as a sign of how independent the Rump Parliament truly was from their military allies, they refused to appoint either Henry Ireton or Thomas Harrison, and Ian Gentles argues that this was a deliberate message, quote, intended to communicate the Rump's intention to take a more conservative tack in the future, end quote. All members of the Council of State were to swear an oath, and Ireton had drafted the first version, which had included approval of the High Court of Justice, the trial and the execution of the king, 
and the abolition of the House of Lords and the monarchy. Now, this was just too much for many members of the council, not least from Fairfax, and in the end, the final version of the oath didn't mention anything specific which had happened in the last few months. Instead, the members of the new Council of State swore to defend the present government, quote, without king and house of peers, end quote. What was done was done. As long as councillors could accept that, they didn't need to approve of it. The world had turned upside down. England was now a republic, and the new Council of State looked around, considered all the threats and potential threats the new republic faced, and settled their gaze firmly on the island of Ireland. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite Mike Sanders, Damien, Duke of Portland, Brandon Stansbury, Marquess of Montague, and Paul Trufazu, Earl of Seattle. Remember that you can join the mailing list to be notified about new episodes and news about the show by going to the link in the description. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening. <laughs>